Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickinson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo Podcast. Ah, it's been another busy week in Dubbo, let me tell you. So there's a lot to discuss. On this week's show, we're going to continue to delve into the issues that have come about from the record rainfalls. In particular, the ongoing problems of our roads and the rapid growth of vegetation around town. We're also going to actually look at the possibility of a hydrogen plant that may well be built in our region. And is this the end of the line for NRL matches in Dubbo? I tell you what, there's some big issues to discuss today. Hello, Matt, how are you? Yeah, really good, thanks, Mark. Thanks for coming along again. It's great to be talking about lots of things involving council and getting this important information out to our residents. Absolutely. And I look, mate, I hope you've loosened up your tonsils for today because, as I said, there's a lot to get through. Let's start with our very first thing in regards to it. Now, during the week, mate, you went down to, to Hobart down there in Tasmania. Now, this was a National Roads Congress meeting, I'm suggesting. Now, just in regards to it, is was this something that's been set up because of what's happening in regards to all up and down the east coast of Australia? Or is this something that happens every year? Normally it happens every year. There have been a couple of years break, as there has been with so many things across the nation and across the world because of COVID. Mm. But this is something that has happened every year. In fact, I remember 10 years ago, back in 2012, I went down to a National Roads Congress oh, in Hobart right? okay. around this same time of year. But this one, I would suggest, is probably the most significant, most important one that I've ever been to. Certainly, mm. I haven't been to one every single year. But it's certainly a very important one, and there was no doubt about it, the mood in the room during the conference. And we probably had, I didn't actually count the numbers there, but I would suggest 220, 250 people from around the nation. This was a National Roads Congress, not a state-based congress. And of those people around the room, the topic that they all wanted to talk about was roads, roads and roads. Obviously, it's a roads congress, but the condition of our roads never before, when I've been to these congresses before, has it been such a mood there to say exasperation, Mm. throwing the hands up in the air, what can we possibly do, how can we fix the problem with the roads, what is the solution, just the the funding mechanisms, just the ways of repairing the roads. So I think Mm. this was a really important Roads Congress as far as Roads Congresses go. Yeah. Is it a a federal government funded operation, this, or is this... No. Who actually runs this? Yeah, this is run by the Australian Local Government Association. There are different associations that councils are... A member of or is a member okay. of. So, for example, in the state-based scenario, there's an organisation called Local Government New South Wales, LGNSW. So they're the peak body for councils around the state. Right. All 128 councils are a member of that particular organisation. And we do various things. We might use them for lobbying, might use them to distribute information. We do have a conference each year with that particular organisation. Then you've also got the Australian Local Government Association. There are 537 councils across the nation. And that organisation has various functions and probably more used for lobbying federal government, mm. but they also do a, and they call them a congress, I don't know why they call them a congress instead of yeah, conference, yeah. but it's just really a conference. Sure. So they have a, an annual congress each year in Canberra that talks about just the general view of things, but they also do a congress each year that's specifically on the roads. They've been doing that for, well, as many years as I can remember on council, mm. and they spread that around to different places. So it's been okay. in Mount Gambier, it's been in Hobart, as I said before, I think Wagga had it once many years ago. So it's been mm. it spreads around the nation, obviously. So yeah. that's a, a peak body for councils across the nation. And then we would normally have at the state-based conference, the LGNSW conference, we would have some state members come along, and we've talked about that on yep. a previous podcast where we had people like Sam Faraway, the regional roads uh, Minister for Regional Roads and Transport. We had the Wendy Tuckerman, for example, mm. the Minister for Local Government. This one we had more federal politicians, so we had Senator Bridget McKenzie come along and talk about roads from her perspective and just funding streams. So it's yep. more focused around how we can get money or how we can have that relationship with the federal government. Cool. Now, in regards to that, you mentioned the word exasperation. I'd <laughs> imagine there must be a lot of exasperated mayors and councillors and you know uh, business managers around the place, I suggest, right now in regards to this. So, so from this Congress that you went to in regards to it, what was some of the end results? What was the take from it? Is, is there more money being handed out? Did they come up with different ways to try to solve some of these problems? Because obviously around the, you know, the state and across Australia right now, we're all facing the same problems. So yeah. what was some of the outtake from that? Certainly, and it really was focused more on the East Coast, more okay. so than Australia, because some parts of Australia, the roads are still okay. There hasn't been the same amount of rainfall as we've had at the East Coast. But any of the people there that I met from Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria pretty much had the same story to tell in terms of the state of the roads there. They had 
or lots of rain in those areas. And in fact, why we were there, for example, the Mayor of Forbes, Phyllis Miller, was there speaking to her one day and she left early to go home the next day because Forbes has been yes. inundated. The Premier oh, was coming our out. going out to Forbes right now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. And when you talk to someone like Phyllis there who's talking to you about the stories at the coalface, about mm. the stories for her people, for people in her local government area, and the, and the impact it's having on those people there, it actually all brings it home. But mm. when you have people there that have got to leave the conference early mm. to go home and deal with those flooding issues, the rainfall, and obviously the damage it does to the road. So yes. going back to your question, what were the magical solutions to yes. the roads there? Anything there? Well, I wouldn't say magical solutions, but certainly there were some pretty big issues discussed in terms of road construction. So, for example, are there ways to construct roads cheaper? Are there different road bases we can use? So there was one session I sat through, which I found fascinating, where they're using glass as part of the underbase. So recycled glass, for example, using that as the underbase. Wow. And when we talked about one local government area in particular, they were saying that they don't want any glass to have to go out to any landfill in their LGA. So every bit of glass that comes in, they want to use that glass some other way in their LGA. And right. road construction is one of those ways. Now, yeah. of course, the first thing that I thought of was, hold on a sec, you put glass on the road, that's right. you have glass lots of punches. <laughs> they normally sort of mix too well, so <laughs> no, you better right. talk us through this. You're doing a whole bunch of work for lots of tyre sellers out there yeah, to sell lots right. more tyres, but it's obviously using under the road construction mm. as part of the base. So okay. when you look at a road, when you drive past some of those roadworks and they dig down fairly deep, that's the secret of getting a good road is getting down to that base, getting a good solid base, building that up from the ground up to get that solid base to, before you put that bitumen, that surface on mm. top. So that was one of the things that I found that's fascinating. Now, we had some case studies from people that are doing it right now, that are actually doing that road construction as we speak and how that might be used. So it's a bit cheaper. Mm. It's probably better from an environmental perspective because we're using recycled materials. Also talk about funding streams, and that's mm. probably a really important thing. As a result of this conference, we actually did have two emergency motions come out from two different organisations, both New South Wales-based. LGNSW, that I mentioned before, put out an emergency motion as a result of the people that were at this particular conference. There was basically a call on the New South Wales government to come up with some additional funding streams to help out the various councils across the state. And Country Mayors Association, which is another organisation that deals with, surprisingly enough, Country mm. Mayors, mm. they put out a media release as well, which was about the same sort of concept, about an emergency release of funds from the state government to those regional councils because of this emergency funding stream. But they talked about this particular conference. Obviously, there are different speakers, different experts in different areas, talked about some different ways of looking at funding streams. And one of the mm. particular sessions that I found fascinating was all the stuff we hear about pork barrelling, all the stuff we hear mm. about different political parties favouring maybe different electorate areas. Swing seats and all those types of things. Swing seats and all the things around how much money is put out to infrastructure by, by different parties. Mm. The Grattan Institute did this fascinating talk, mm. very heavy on data, but I do love my data, that went into great detail about that basically said the funding stream that we're getting has been pretty much the same, and this is federal they're talking about, yep. pretty much the same across both flavours of government over the last two decades. And in terms of the electorates, it didn't seem to be a heavy favouring okay. towards any particular electorate in terms yeah. of who was in power yep. and which electorates received that money. And I'm sure people will find individual mm. examples where it sure. might look like a bit of pork barrelling. But when you do a cold, hard data analysis of that, yes. that showed that it was actually quite even-handed. The balance seemed okay. It did seem okay. But the really important part was the funding and the funding streams, one of the things that's fascinating is how do we unlock some funding today mm. to rebuild roads today and how do we do that with a big picture in mind? Because yeah. what we found in some of the reports we looked at the conferences is that you'll get a road that gets rebuilt to a certain level, to a certain standard, and then five years later, seven years later, it gets damaged by floods. They rebuild it to the same standard. Five years, seven years later, rebuilt yep. to the same standard, mm. and that goes over and over. Now, one of the things that's fascinating is that when a state government, for example, gives you emergency funding to repair damage done by flooding, one of the clauses in the contract you sign with the state government is you won't repair to a better state. So, in other words, oh, our contract says you've got to repair that road back to how it was. And yep. if we said, well, actually, we'd, we'd like, like to make better. it a bit better, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. No, you're not allowed to do that. We you have to do it to the same standard. Why is that? 
Well, I think it's one of those things that it's a bit like an insurance claim. If you've got an old beaten up car that's 20 years old and it gets stolen, mm. you can't go and say, let's replace it with a brand new modern luxury vehicle. Mm. Insurance company will say, you've got to replace it with the same equivalent standard. So is it also about how much funding you're entitled to for that type of road? It's a, along those lines, yeah. With the state government, it's like an insurance, if you like, where they'll say, that was a standard it was, we'll repair it to that same standard, even though logically mm. it might be better to repair it to a higher standard. So... That was part of the, the conversation, if you like, that we're having with government to say it would make more sense to repair it to a higher standard. Mm. And we know in another X number of years, you're going to be giving us that money again. So mm. one of the concepts was, can we bring some of that funding forward? Even if a council funds it, for example, can we bring it forward? We'll fund the repair to a better state. Mm. And the next time that damage would have occurred, that normal sort of damage would have occurred, yep. is there some way we can get that funding back to pay us back? So in other words, we might take out a loan yeah, against yeah. that future damage yep. to get that done. Or even it might be take out a loan to build roads to a better standard that a developer might need to put in place in mm. some future year's time and they have an agreement with those developers. Yeah. So it's looking at ways to bring some of that funding forward rather than wait until those things occur. It's complicated mm. and it's different and it's different ways to what we've done it before but what we're seeing at the moment as we go forward with a change in climate mm. we can't just keep doing things the same Absolutely old way not. and look did the federal government buy into this did they agree in principle that this is a good idea or what did they say no not at all yet so it's, okay. it's, it's, <laughs> it's a long process it's still early days I of the conversation. That. that's right federal government it's going to take a while yes okay. well any any level of government Absolutely. because if that government's doing the right thing they're trying to use the money they've got in the best possible way so mm. it really is about starting conversations, getting thought processes to change. Okay. When you turn up to a conference and you throw an idea at a government person, a minister or a government mm. employee, it's very rare for them to say, that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, sign off that right now. That's right, let's yeah. do it today. Yeah, Before absolutely. we go home, we'll, we'll have it all done. <laughs> and there are probity issues to go through, so I understand sure. that. In fact, one of my frustrations when I first got on council was how slow things were to make happen. Mm. And I got a little bit frustrated in the first place, and I had a bit of a talk to a few of the more experienced councillors and a few of the staff and what I realised is that it's not my money I'm spending, mm. it's your money I'm spending, mm. it's someone else's money, yeah. and I've got to make sure that what I'm doing is the best possible way There's to spend that money. There's a lot of accountability money. when it comes to capital, Correct. isn't there? If yeah. it's my money, if it's my business, or if it's my home, and I decide to put a new TV in, I go and buy that new TV and mm. put it up there, if my wife says, I don't like that TV, I say, oh, sorry, I bought it now, mm. and it's not, there's not a really big issue there, or if I make a mistake and spend money on not a great purchase, well, it's me that's silly, and yeah, yeah. That's, it's on me. When it's public money, the process has got to be slower so that you get the best possible outcome. Mm. So I understand that. But again, these conversations take time. We need to get governments thinking okay. differently. We have to think differently yeah. because we've got to get different outcomes. We can't keep doing things the way we've been doing them because we're just not going to achieve what we need to achieve. We're going to be continually chasing our tail with repairs, which is what we're doing at the moment. We really are chasing our tail. Can I sort of bring you back into the local level here then? In regards to that, and obviously, look, right now, roads, everyone's talking about roads. I came back from Sydney the other day, and the state of the Mitchell Highway is just absolutely atrocious across the board. It's, it's all the way through from Dubbo all the way through to Sydney there. On our local base, now we've mentioned a couple of times in previous podcasts how, you know, Dubbo City Council, responsibility, top of my head, 2,800 kilometres of road, I think was the figure you stated there a couple of weeks ago. Two, 2872. 2872, my bad yeah. again. Just, that's total roads across right. the LGA. I will get better at these figures. Right? <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's total roads across the LGA, which... They're not all our responsibility, but that's all that's right. the roads. There's a three-level split, isn't there? We Correct. talk about that. Yeah. Um, now, just in regards to that, can I sort of, I, certainly from a, a resident of Dubbo, sort of looking at this, I believe the fact that in any type of situation, especially when it comes to the fixture of roads, there's, there's the cost factor that's obviously involved in fixing the roads, but there's also the manpower factor. In other words, you know, you've got to have the people there to do this job. Now, I'd imagine right now everybody's looking outside their door and seeing potholes everywhere. But we've only got a limited number of people that can obviously be running around and putting these, filling in these potholes around the place. What is our, and how do we prioritise all of that? And how many people do we actually have here in council that we can physically say, hey guys, this is your job for the day? Because I imagine these blokes must be up at six o'clock in the morning, working through till six o'clock at night. You know, they're copying it left, right, and centre on social media. Oh, the state of the road's terrible. But these poor blokes, I'm sure, must be working damn hard right now to do the right thing. So where are we at in council in regards to all of that? The costing to actually put it together, we've got the money to do it, have we? And number two, how many people do we actually have out there who can actually fix these roads for us? So the really interesting part is that we've talked about it before. This budget in our financial year 
is $28 million mm. that we're spending on the roads this year already. So Significant figure, isn't it? It is. So it's not yeah. as if we're not spending any money on the roads. And people mightn't see evidence of that, but there's a lot of roads we've got to actually fix and repair and maintain. We've estimated before these last, latest rainfalls that we've got about a $40 million backlog. If the state government turned up tomorrow and said, Matthew, we've heard what you had to say, here's $40 million, knock yourself out. You're spot on. I have actually said this in conversations that I've had with government, mm. that even if that happened, and I would take it, don't get me wrong, I would take the money. Absolutely. <laughs> in a very much. That's it, yes. But just getting the manpower and the materials. That's the other thing that's important is that it is actually quite hard. Builders are seeing at the moment materials across any sphere of building sectors very difficult to get your hands on. Uh, I talked about one developer recently just to get concrete pipes in the ground to actually do the land development before they could start putting houses on there. It was a nine-month wait mm. for concrete pipes. Concrete mm. pipes, just, they look like they're the pretty simple. Alone. That's Something right. Else, so yeah, they don't okay. look like they're complicated. Nine-month wait. So that's part of the problem. Just to get the materials, just to get the bitumen, for example, to get the asphalt, all of those materials – it would be difficult for us to get all of those materials if we had that $40 million. Mm. And then, as you've quite correctly said, the manpower. Now, mm. I can't tell you the exact number sure. of manpower that we've got. We've got over 500 staff that work at council. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't tell you how many people are working sure. in our divisions that are out there working on the roads. But I know we have a number of road crews out there. And yeah. even when I drive around, I see them out there yes. and yes. wave and say good day to them as I drive past. But there are people out there working. And you're right, they are working long hours at the moment. They're working trying to get through mm. all the repairs that are out there. So again, when people say, can you just send someone around, which mm. I do hear this, can yeah. you just send someone around, it's just a little job, they'll just knock it over pretty quickly. Mm. The problem is there's probably 50 or 100 of those little jobs just to knock it over quickly. Yeah. So prioritisation is a big issue. Now, when we look at prioritisation, it really is a process of how much is that road used, how many people are using that road, and how bad is the condition of that road. And we've got mm. ways of gauging or judging the condition of that road. One of the problems we see is sometimes people say, I've had this road out here, out to my property, and it's been in a terrible condition for years. The problem is there might be three people on that road that it mm. services, yep. and it is in our priority scale, but it's down low because not many people are utilising that. Other roads that might have thousands of cars an hour going mm. on them obviously have a higher priority yep. rather than those lower priority roads. So it is a combination of usage and condition of that road. Yep. And then, of course, you've got bitumen or sealed roads versus unsealed roads and so the sealed roads have a higher priority as well as the unsealed roads obviously unsealed they're unsealed for a reason because they're not used that often so there's a whole range of complicated processes you go through mm. to get to that final scenario of saying that's where the crews are going today but yeah. i can guarantee you and i've seen this happening in some councils where this is the case but i can guarantee you it's not as if the guys turn up to the workshop in the morning and go right jimmy what are you we going to do, do today? today that's right there is a <laughs> schedule of works laid out yes. for them well in advance. And the same with all of our mowing. In fact, one of the things that yeah. councillors did in one of our tours in the early days when we first started on this new council was we went up to the depot, we sat there with Craig Arms, who runs that division, and he went through all the schedules for mowing, just simply mowing, just to, sh to point out mm -hmm. to councillors, here's the process we do for mowing of all our lawns, mowing of all our parks, the verges of the highways, mm. the park run areas, all these different areas of Dubbo and Wellington. Here's the process we have in place. Here's the schedule. And of course, come summer, you get some rain and you get some sun and the grass goes crazy. Oh, Fantastic. Right now. We yes. don't suddenly have 10 extra staff to no. go and do all that extra mowing that might be required during those periods of time. Do the priorities still stay the same like right now? Like in regards to the fact that let's say we go back to winter and when things were obviously not growing nearly where as fast as they are right now. Do, do we change the priorities as the seasons move on? Do, do, are there certain areas that we give a high priority to in regards to the, the parks and the land care and in regards to the mowing of all of that? Yeah, not so much different areas of different priorities in different seasons, but it's more what they do. So, for example, during winter, that might be times when you do more of the maintenance of the equipment or you might look at you've got to roll over some equipment, replace some equipment, do some extra training. So you might have some of those processes. If someone of the guys want to take holidays during that time, we'd encourage them during those winter months. In summer, the priorities are the same. It just means they're more active during summer. So they're out there utilising that equipment as much as possible. 100% utilisation would be ideal, but obviously you can never get 100%, but out there doing that work. But priorities in terms of even parks, for example, Victoria Park in the centre of Dubbo has got a very high priority in some of the regional areas, some of the, I say regional areas, some of the, the suburbs, if you like, of Dubbo and Wellington, parks that aren't used as often as Victoria Park might have a lower priority. Mm. 
areas around Tracker Riley, for example, around some of that might have a higher priority than other areas that might be just along the roadside, for example. So depending again on usage and the condition of those, that'll change those priorities. But the priorities are generally set in terms of the types of priorities. It's just how often they can get back there and rotate around. And it is a bit like the Harbour Bridge. They start paying the Harbour Bridge on one side, they go across the other, they start again. (laughs) So when they're mowing those areas, they'll they'll have a program. Feels like my front yard right now. Exactly right. Anyone that's got lawn will know exactly what we're talking about, that you finish the lawn, you go, that looks magnificent today, and you sit down and have a nice lunch or a coffee, Mm -hmm. looking out over your beautiful lawn, and then you go to work for the week and you mm. get busy and then the next weekend you go, what happened to that lawn? It was that's beautiful last weekend. I know what my next weekend job is straight away. I want right. to wrap it up there, Matt, on that one. I think that's fantastic. And look, to everybody out there, we've just got to be patient and uh, those lawns will get mowed and those holes hopefully eventually will get filled. Now, Matt, uh, there's been a bit of talk in regards to obviously what's happening uh, with the NRL games. Now, I know this has been something that's been discussed uh, for quite a while within Council. Um, there's been a bit of talk recently of the fact that potentially our last game we had when Souths came up here is actually potentially going to be our last game. Is, is this the case, Matt? What's, what's actually happened here? Certainly for next year, definitely. Last okay. game forever, I would say no. Okay. Let me go back into the dark distant past mm. and just talk a little bit about how these games work. If I go back to the last time I was mayor, we were in there talking to NRL. In fact, there was a group called Evo Cities at the time, and we used to have people like Todd Greenberg, for example, they used to come along and talk to us about how we'd get games in different areas. And so we said, at that time we had seven cities in Evo Cities, we said that most of those seven cities can host an NRL game. We've got the grounds, we've got the various equipment mm. and the capacity that we need for an NRL game, we'd love you, Mr. NRL, to come along and host some games regionally. And they said, oh, we're, we're very supportive of that. We think mm. that's a great idea. You should do that. And we'll leave you to have a discussion with an individual club or a few of those clubs. Now, that happened. And the problem was that the club said, we'd love to come and bring a game to Bathurst or to Mudgee or to Tamworth, mm. Dubbo, yep. wherever Which it might be. Which is what they've done. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. And all we want is a check for, and it varied depending on who the club was, $450,000, $350,000, those kind of dollars is that right? to bring a game. Now, for most of those, they were in discussions with the council, but for some of them they had private organisations. And I remember one, there was a game, we had a Manly game coming to Dubbo at one stage, and Mike Eden, you may remember, played for Manly remember mm-hmm. years ago. I remember mm-hmm. he was a, a right and left-footed kicker. He'd kick from one side of the field with his right foot and when he was kicking the goal. Something I could never do, yes. Yeah, yes. and on the other side of the field, he'd kick from the other, with his other foot. But he was based down in Albury. He's got a, a business down in Albury. And we had the game coming to Dubbo. We weren't forking out the money they wanted. There was a, a process in place where they were coming along and they would certainly generate enough income to cover their costs and, and make yep. some money along the way. But Mike Eden put a little consortium together and they took that game down to Albury. And I remember the Albury mayor ringing me at the time going, look, I'm really sorry, Matt. Yeah. We haven't tried to steal this game away from you, but a private group have put a better offer in to Manly and Manly's a business. So yes. they said, well, we can go out there and play it in Dubbo and we might have a bit of risk as we're selling tickets there or we can guarantee income and take this game to Albury. So, yep, we'll do that. Thanks very much. Mm. So they're running it as a business as much as we would like to think that they're bringing it to regional areas because they love the game, then they're really running it as a business. Yes. Now, Penrith, as you would probably be well aware, takes games to Bathurst each year. They've got a deal with the Panthers Leagues Club there. Mm. Uh, it's, it's like an RSL club, I think, there in Bathurst, but they've got a, a deal there. And council certainly helps out there. I won't say the number that they pay there, but I've yep. told you the sort of numbers that are the sort of numbers going around, yep. and I, I just haven't got permission to talk about the numbers sure. for anywhere else. Sure. But the problem is, and a part of my issue, is that that's your money I'm spending, not my money I'm spending. Mm. So I've got to be very conscious of mm. that. Now, before I got back on the council this time, the state government came along and our local member, Dougal Saunders, had headed that up, said, we're going to kick in $150,000 okay. to any of the councils that can do a deal with a club and put a deal together to bring a, a game out so, to a regional so area. this is like, let's say, in that situation, the state government is basically saying, look, we'll give you, let's say, $150,000 yep. towards the 350000 Is that Correct. how that works? Yeah, that's right. Which would then leave you, basic maths, $200,000 to fork out here in Dubbo. Correct. So they did that deal last year as okay. a two-year deal with South Sydney. Yep. So the council and the state government agreed, council would pay two hundred, state government would pay one dollars $350,000, there you go, South Sydney, there's your 350. You'll now bring a game for the next two years. They sign an agreement off 
and that was all done. And the game was played last year. The crowd was okay last year, yep. but it was a COVID-impacted crowd. Right. It so it was hard to see exactly what would happen. This year was probably the real test on that in terms of how would that go, what sort of crowd would we get, mm. would council come out in front of that. And again, that's $200,000 still of your money that mm. I was taking to pay to South Sydney. Now, I didn't have any say in it. The deal was already done. The contracts were signed. So from my perspective, new back on the council, yeah. let the contract run. There's no point jumping them down about it. Whether I loved it or hated it, irrelevant. It's yeah. already done. So let's run with that. So we played the game this year. We had 11,124 spectators. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. We estimate injection into the local economy anywhere from 2.4 to $2.8 million. Okay. So that sounds fantastic. Good so solid. that means that pubs, clubs, hospitality, yes. motels, all that type of organisations. this is going to be the counter-argument, isn't it? This is going to be where people get a bit emotional about this, is the fact that they'll say, but wait a minute. You know, we, we bring in 11,000 people here for this game. That's injecting $2.8 million into Dubbo community. Why then won't council fork out the $350,000? And that's exactly where the argument is. Now, Mm. that argument works fine if I'm a motel owner or if I'm a cafe owner Mm. that I bring people in and it boosts the output or the sales for my motel, my cafe, my hospitality. But if I'm a resident that's retired in Dubbo or I'm a wage earner that doesn't work in the hospitality industry in Dubbo, what do I see out of it for some of my rates money going to South Sydney. So when we had our first discussion with South Sydney, I one of the first things I said to them was, I think it's only fair to the Dubbo community that they know how much is being paid yes. and I wanted to make sure they were comfortable with that. And they were very good to deal with. They said, yes, we're more than comfortable with that. Tell the community, we think it's fair and reasonable. No one else does. Yep. <laughs> no, yep. other, no other council across... This is the first time I've ever heard a figure like this. This is interesting. Yeah, and okay. that's exactly right. No one across the nation does. When they take games to all these different locations you see games being taken to... Mm. I'm not aware of any arrangement where it's the NRL who covers the costs mm. or the NRL who says, let's take a game there and we'll make sure it's all okay. It's always some organisation in those locations, whether it be a private consortium, whether it be a private club, a leagues club, for example, someone that owns a football ground or a council, yeah. they're all paying those teams money. Now, from that perspective, you can understand from the team's perspective, they're yeah. a business. So yeah. they want to make sure they've got guaranteed income for those particular games. Yeah. So 350 was paid. In this year, 200 provided by council, 150 provided by the state government. Yeah. We ran the game, and at the end of all of that, with the setup costs of the game and making sure everything was right for it, with good spectator numbers, council lost about $67,000 on that scenario. Okay. Now, again, so it's not $200,000 that cost the ratepayers of Dubbo, it cost them $67,000. Sure. And probably at $67,000, you'd say, you know, that's not too bad for a $2.4, $2.8 million injection into the economy. Mm. And I think those people that don't get a direct benefit from that, I think they'd probably say, I can probably live with that. Although we did have some people from the arts community, for example, who said, you're paying all this money for an NRL game to come. Why aren't you paying that same kind of money for something from an arts perspective to come? Now, there's a different argument there altogether. I won't go into detail on that now, but I think we do pay money for different arts organisations to come along and support Dubbo. But but that was an argument. So it's not like everyone was running down the street clicking their heels. Mm. I'm a league fan. I support Manly, so please don't hate me for that. But that's right, I support Parramatta, so we'll finish that discussion <laughs> well, very quickly. That's right. <laughs> so it's something that, you know, I've, I've uh, played league up to mm. under-16s when I was a schoolboy. So it's something that I would say personally, yeah, great, fantastic, but I can't make decisions about what I want. Mm. Every decision I make, I'm trying to make a decision on what 55,000 people want. So that's the really important part. Now, the interesting part was back in February this year, we went to the state government and said, well, we're going to have some discussion with South Sydney after the game this year, and we'd like to know whether we've got that $150,000 from the state government again. So mm. we resolved that at the February council meeting. I sent a letter, a formal letter to our local member, Dougal Saunders, mm. to say, do we have the $150,000 again next year? Because that will make our decision much easier whether to go ahead with it in subsequent years. The state government, through Dougal, said, I can't guarantee that money. So oh, then... Okay. When we get to the decision for next year, the $350,000 would all come from council. Mm. So we know that when we were provided 150 from the state government, we lost 67. Again, yeah. do some basic maths. If we had to pay, that's right, if we had okay. to pay the 150, that's a $217,000 loss on the same scenario as this year. So then mm. you start to say, 217, as a average Joe Blow rate payer, are you happy with me spending 217 
on an NRL game or would you like that on potholes, for example? Would you mm. like that on something else? Would you like that on some sort of arts function? Is there something mm. else we could do better for our community with 217? Now, it's, there was... Can I actually interrupt you there for a second? Yep. Is there an opportunity then with this, based on that, if state government won't come through, is there an opportunity for like, I'm just thinking uh, top of my head here, maybe a private consortium or a group privately who may be interested in supporting financially uh, one of these NRL games coming to town here? I, I do know there are a couple of groups here that quite often seem to have their names associated with these uh, these groups. Is there an opportunity there for these guys to put more in to... I'm not quite sure how they get their money back on it, but probably more of a goodwill gesture, I'd suggest, but there might be something there. Is there an opportunity for that? Would council work with uh, a private group in regards to a joint funding arrangement? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's exactly the sort of thing that could happen. Okay. And council's always said from the very beginning when we started dealing with NRL way back when, we would do all the work to provide the ground for you. We're not going to charge you for the ground like we would a normal commercial venture, for example. We would do all the work in terms of supporting it, in terms of making sure we've got food vans there. Basically, we would provide the facilities for you. Mm. If you turn up with your team or two teams, then we'll make sure that everything else is right. So if a private consortium came along and said, we're going to go and pay three fifty grand to South Sydney or some other club and we'll basically do all that, take the risk on that, we'll sell the tickets, mm. will council be a part of providing that, again, for the economic injection for the community? And we would say, definitely, again, make yep. sure the details, right? But in yep. general terms, that's exactly where council would be. I did read a report in the paper that said that the reason they're not coming next year is because they asked for an agreement before the game, which is inaccurate. And I've mm. actually had a talk to South Sydney about that statement in the paper, which I, I found a little bit confusing because... I've been involved from discussions early this year and there was certainly no demand from South City to say, sign a new agreement before the game, otherwise we're not coming back next year, which is the mm. way I read it in the paper. Mm. Mm. Uh, there was some communication last year before I was back on council with our council staff members to say, we'd like to start some discussions about next year, but we can't come into any agreement until after June and before the end of October. So there was a window there and yeah. we all were happy with that particular window, which again is what we did. We had some discussions after that and we had some discussions with other clubs as well because there are other clubs mm. who charge varying amounts. Again, some charge more than that 350 yeah. But at this stage, and one of the things that's interesting, sorry, going back one step mm. there, is that the NRL is lacking grounds for next year in a certain part of the season because the Female Soccer World Cup is being held next ah, year, which right is taking okay. some of the grounds up in Sydney. Yep. So we sent a letter off to the NRL many months ago and said, we know you've got a problem. You've got some ground missing next year. Yes. We've got the solution for you. We've got a ground. You know that we've got a great ground. You've played some great city country matches here. You've played NRL games here. Mm. You know we've got the facilities. We're happy to help you out in providing that ground for you when you don't have enough grounds in Sydney. What and the NRL sent a, a letter off uh, back to us to say, very politely, thank yeah. you, we're aware of your grounds, okay. and we'll consider those in the whole scenario of calculations. Sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah, so in essence, we've had discussions with South Sydney, we've had discussions with other teams. At this stage, no team was interested because they, they probably thought that South Sydney were going to come back, so they didn't want to step mm. on their toes. Mm. South Sydney came back and said, we love what happened with everything that was outside the game last year, and or this year and last year. We love the support from council. We love the community support. So they were very happy with everything that happened. And in fact, one of the South Sydney staff that we dealt with sent me an email to basically tell me about how wonderful everything was. And the reason they gave for not wanting to come back next year, and, and I'll give you the exact words, were football operations. Now, you can read into that whatever you like. Mm. Separately to that, this is a separate quote to that is that they suffered a heavy defeat both last year and this mm. year in the game. Yes, I'd be disappointed to think that Suffering a heavy defeat was enough reason for them yeah. not to come back. But again, football operations okay. was the term that I was allowed to use I, publicly. I, I, I wasn't actually going to go into that, but let's just say the fact that if South's referring to it as a home game advantage and a home crowd advantage, unfortunately, I think we had the crowd support. There's a lot of South supporters there, but unfortunately they ended on the other side of the coin, didn't they, with both those results pretty substantially. Yeah. So anyway, so at this stage, NRL okay. not coming back next year. None of the teams, they've got to lock the draw in. Still open for discussions. Well, we'll, we'll have conversations. But the, the other thing that's interesting from that is that we might get a slightly different game. So, for example, we've had Rugby Union reach mm. out to us after they read the story in the paper yeah. and they said, we might like to play a game out there. We've had NRLW have yes. a brief discussion with us to say that maybe a female NRL match might be out there. Yeah. So we've had some other clubs, codes, organisations talk to us to say, mm. hey, we know you've got a great ground out there. Yeah. Sounds like South Sydney really happy with that. 
what can we talk about? So it doesn't mean it's dead in the water. No. But again, from my perspective, from council's perspective, we're always looking at how do we spend your money in the best possible way and locking in a five-year or a 10-year agreement with an NRL club to spend a lot of money every year, I'm not convinced is the best thing to do. But again, we'd, we'd take that to the community and see what our community wants us to do because, again, it's about providing those opportunities and going forward from there. Absolutely. As you say, look, there's plenty more things I think we could talk about in regards to this and I suggest maybe we save that for another podcast and we'll continue on with this discussion because there's lots more still to talk about. Now, Matt, uh, the other week you you caught up with uh, some guys who were thinking about maybe putting in a hydrogen plant here in Dubbo. Now, talk us through, first of all, I suppose, is this the stuff that, that Twee Forrester's been talking about over in Western Australia? I'm not quite sure if, if I got the right guy there. I think that was the, the gentleman who was uh, putting in these hydrogen plants around the place. Look, the two things, from a layman's point of view, from sitting back and not knowing too much about this, can you briefly sort of talk to about, number one, is this true? Is this potentially what's going to maybe look towards happening? And number two, what is a hydrogen plant? Like, can you go through some of the logistics and how the dynamics of this work? So as you'd know, hydrogen is in water, H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, make up water. It's a fairly common formula that most people are familiar with. They hear H2O, they know what that's talking about. So the H in that, the hydrogen, if you extract that from the water, you've got a gas that you can then burn. Mm -hmm. Now, when you burn it, and I say burn in inverted commas, because what you get as a result when you burn that, you're basically combining it back with oxygen to get energy out of that process, Mm. and you get a byproduct of water. So it's pretty good. You take water, you pull it apart, have oxygen and hydrogen, and then you essentially put it back together. Now, it takes energy to pull it apart, as you can imagine. And it's not the most efficient process. So if I was to use electricity that I've created from burning coal and I create hydrogen in that process and then put it back together, then that whole energy equation is fairly inefficient. So it seems like I'm doing more damage to the environment doing Mm. it that way. That doesn't make sense. But what does make sense is if you've got some renewable energy, so we're not burning coal now, we're spinning wind turbines or we're having solar panels that are getting energy from the sun and we create hydrogen in that scenario because hydrogen is a good way to store that energy. So when we've got excess energy, the sun's shining away and not everyone's using power at the moment or the, the wind turbines are spinning and we're not using all that energy, then you can store some of that energy in batteries. Right. But you get to the stage where you, you reach a limit of those batteries in a fairly short time frame, depending on how big your batteries are. Mm. And it's a bit hard to transport that energy when it's in a battery. If you convert it to hydrogen, it may not be the most efficient process in the world, but you've got it in something that can be transported, but also can be stored because you just need some hydrogen tanks and you can store fairly large amounts of hydrogen. Does the hydrogen get stored, is it in a liquid form or? Normally in a gas form. Gas form, At okay. fairly high pressure because you want to, like hydrogen in terms yes. of if okay. it's in our environment, in our atmosphere, for example, but you're not getting much luck out of burning it in our environment. Mm. So you need to have it in a fairly compressed format. Yeah. What you've got in Dubbo, because we're part of a renewable energy zone, what you've got here is there will be times during the day where you'll have wind turbines spinning, you'll have solar panels producing electricity, and companies are saying, well, what can we do with that excess electricity when people aren't using it? Converting it into hydrogen makes sense. Now, there's one particular proponent at the moment that's already bought some land on Yarrandale Road. They've bought that land with the sole purpose of creating a hydrogen plant there creating hydrogen, but also burning gas and hydrogen initially, and I'll get to the the Mm. technicalities here in a moment, Mm. but burning gas and hydrogen initially to create electricity in the initial stages to be able to provide some power when you need power again, when it's at night time or wind turbines aren't spinning. What you do in the early stages of that is you combine natural gas. We've got natural gas in Dubbo. Rather than burning 100% natural gas, which obviously isn't a lot better than burning Mm. coal, you're still Mm. burning something, producing CO2. They then do a mix initially. So they do a mix of 75% natural gas, 25% hydrogen. So they have that mix. And then as they get the technology better, the ultimate aim is to get to the stage where you get 100% hydrogen. But in those early stages, they can do that mix together. Now, one of the problems with transporting hydrogen in our current natural gas pipelines, because the first question I said was, well, Mm. great, we can produce hydrogen here. And then these natural gas pipelines we've got, we can use that to send hydrogen through those. But unfortunately, 
the pipes that we've got at the moment were built for natural gas. They right. weren't built for hydrogen. Is hydrogen the compression factor of them? Or well, that? there's a couple of problems with hydrogen. The first thing is that hydrogen is very small. If you remember the periodic table of elements, hydrogen sits at number oh, one. Stretching my memory. Yeah, sorry. Yes. <laughs> number one is hydrogen, so it's the smallest atom. Okay. So it can escape through fairly normal, what you think would be normal pipes, but it also makes those pipes very brittle. So you start okay. putting hydrogen down there, and I don't know exactly how, but those pipes become very brittle and can break very easily. So you don't want to start transporting that hydrogen down those pipes, but mm. you can do that mixture, that shandy, if you like, okay. with natural gas and hydrogen. We'll get to the point where we'll be using that hydrogen in different ways, again, mm. burning them to produce power. But the other thing that's going to happen, it's already happening at that congress that I talked about in Hobart, yes. we actually had on display there an electric vehicle from, Hi from Hyundai, but they also talked about, and they didn't have one on display there, but they talked about some areas in Australia are already using hydrogen vehicles. So, for example, you've got the uh, Canberra government, they've got 20 hydrogen vehicles, you've got Queensland government up there, yeah, right. they've got about 10 hydrogen vehicles, but you need hydrogen to put in those vehicles. Yep. So we, what you need for those is some sort of recycling, sorry, refueling facility and transporting that fuel over a long distance is not a great way to do it. So what you normally want to do is produce the hydrogen. Keep it local. That's right. And we happen to be sitting on the Newell Highway. Mm. So what they're talking about doing with this, and these are all things down the track, creating hydrogen at this particular plant on Yarrandale Road so that when you start to get long-haul vehicles, when you start to get semi-trailers that are powered mm. by hydrogen, then they'll be able to refuel. And I know the Yarrandale Road is not on the Newell Highway, but you'll be able yeah. to turn off the Newell Highway fairly easily yeah. and refuel. So what will happen is that you'll actually be able to have hydro being produced there in a very cheap climate way. In other words, yeah. you'll be able to have this excess power from solar and wind, produce hydrogen there, and then refuel those large trucks that will be coming through. And the reason you want large trucks to be hydrogen rather than electric vehicles is because you'll be able to refuel them quickly. And effectively, a uh, hydrogen vehicle, and I've been in a hydrogen vehicle, I've been in two different hydrogen vehicles, they drive like an electric vehicle because okay. essentially what they're doing is they're using that process to convert hydrogen to electricity to then power a battery to then run an electric motor. So as far as you're concerned, you're driving an electric vehicle. They're wonderful to drive, but you just have that ability to refuel easier. So if you're mm. someone that was doing a lot of kilometres in a day or you're a truck driver driving long distances in a day, you don't want to have the process of recharging batteries. That's a bit clumsy. Swapping out batteries, a bit clumsy. Mm. Refueling with hydrogen. Well, basically the same process of refueling with petrol. So, so that's the, the main goal of hydrogen, is it to basically to be used to recharge batteries? Is, is that, like again, in very simplistic sort of terms from where I'm sitting? Yeah, not so much battery. recharge batteries, but to have vehicles that will actually power that vehicle with hydrogen. Okay, so to power, a bit like a fuel source in that sense. Correct. So rather okay. than fueling it with petrol or even LPG, which yeah. many taxis used to convert to, you'll have a hydrogen refueling process. Now, again, I imagine that vehicles that most people drive will still be electric vehicles in the future yeah. because most people are driving short distances each day. Mm. But if you're a sales rep that clocks up a 1,000 kilometres in a day, mm. you might do that with a hydrogen vehicle because it's very convenient to refuel. Is it cost-effective as well? Yeah, very cost-effective. Hydrogen, okay. especially produced with renewables, is very good to the environment mm. and very cheap to produce because you're using excess power to produce it. So when we get to that point when we've got a hydrogen production facility here in Dubbo, it'll be mm. used for what's called firming. So that means that you're putting power back into the grid when it's needed. Right. You might be actually using it to get the frequency right on the grid. So sometimes with renewable power, that 50 hertz frequency that we need on the grid mm. might be getting a little bit out because you're getting a slightly variable production of power. So you might use a hydrogen plant to put that firming power back in at 50 hertz, or you might be using it to provide energy for vehicles that are being mm. driven along that particular route there. So all these things are quite interesting. This is early days, mm. but we had that proponent come along and talk to councillors about their plans for a hydrogen plant here in Dubbo based on the fact that we're nice and close to that renewable energy zone where mm. you've got that excess power. So they're progressing fairly well. So they've, they've bought that land already. Mm. They're looking at some of their plans and they'll keep pro pro progressing along that pathway. But again, Dubbo yeah. is in a very exciting spot in this whole renewable energy zone where we'll have wind, we'll have solar, we've already got them now, we'll have batteries, we'll also probably have some hydrogen here as well. So exciting times. I'll tell you what it is indeed, isn't it? That's wonderful to hear. All very exciting stuff.
Now, Matt, I see where there's a business opportunity for someone who wants to run their own business here in town at the regional livestock markets. That's all a bit of, uh, I suppose, um, opportunity here to sort of to, to sell an idea uh, for any listener out there who might be looking for a bit of an expression of interest there for an on-site cafe. So what's what's happening there very quickly? Yeah, so we've got a number of our particular areas that we do, and it's amazing how many things that we're involved with in council. Mm. So we do have things like caravan parks, like airports or airport singular, caravan park singular, uh, childcare centre. One of the things, one of our business functions of council is the Debo Regional Livestock Markets. And one of the things we have out there is a cafe. Okay. So we've actually got expressions well, of interest. everyone needs their coffees, Matt. That's it's exactly right. a very right. important part of the day. And, and we've tried different models over the years. We've tried having... Those facilities, so a cafe, for example, at the airport or at the Western Plains Cultural Centre, run by council staff, and often we try and have them run by an external contractor. So we put that out for expressions of interest. Some will put a, a bid in, whether they might say they'll pay a certain amount each week or each year for that, and some of the facilities are already there, ready for them to run a cafe. So it's a good way for someone young who doesn't have a lot of capital to start a business but might have a bit of a dream they can run a business quite yeah. well. It's a good way for them to have a look at that. So if anyone's interested in that, we are holding or we've got expressions of interest open at the moment for the cafe at the regional livestock markets. Do they put their application? Applications expression of interest through council. Is there something on the website there for that? Or? Correct, exactly right. So if you go and look at our website, dubbo.nsw.gov.au, go and search for that at the moment. Uh, again, Dubbo Regional Livestock Markets. And that's something that, again, I've seen great people have a go, Absolutely. starting a business, yeah. running a business, and that's a great way for them to do it because they've got those facilities there. They don't have to invest a lot of money up front. Yes. And again, we take applications from a whole range of people and then eventually a decision will be made that one of those will be the successful tenderer and or the successful one with expression of interest, and they'll be running that cafe there. Normally it's over a multi-year contract, for example, but again, they get to run that business and it takes that responsibility away from council staff to do that. Mm. It leaves it up to that individual contractor. So good opportunity there for someone. Absolutely. Well, someone out there, a little bit of entrepreneurial foresight and thought, great chance for you. Now, Matt, one of the great things I love about living in our town this time of year is the bulky rubbish collection day. Oh, God, I love this. I should not... I'm saying I love it because my wife normally is the one who seems, seems to love it more. She's always on to me about getting into the, the shed and taking out all the rubbish that's been accumulating over the course of the last 12 months. It's that time of year, folks. So talk us through us, Matt. Uh, what's what's the process this year? I think, it, has it begun yet or we we started? It has begun. It becomes a swap meet, doesn't it? I it see. Does. <laughs> Isn't it just? You, you'll see people wandering around, you know, at weird hours of the night, sort of shuffling through all the gear. They sit out there and, oh, look, there's an old trike bike that's been sitting there in someone's shed for 25 years, but someone's found it. There they go, step toe and sun sort of style. Away they go. Yeah, I like the idea that that's reuse it's not throwing it out obviously when council picks it up it does get thrown out but yes. when people are foraging through all that rubbish oh, i think it's fantastic and it's amazing how much stuff gets picked up as you drive around you'll see some stuff on the side of the road and then you look at it maybe two three days later and you go hold on that that pile's a bit smaller but it hasn't been picked up yet so it actually gets changed around does, and reused in different areas. Right. but we're actually at the moment this week Dubbo Urban Zone 3 is the collection area, okay, and that's that? up to this Friday, so the 11th of November we've got till there. Now, Zone 3 is essentially west of the railway line, and actually, if you look at the two railway lines, the railway line that used to go out towards Toongai, right. west of that, and basically south of the railway line, the main railway line that the XBT okay. goes on. So that's a very rough description of it. But if yep. you go to dubbo.nsw.gov.au forward slash bulky rubbish, right. rubbish, then you've got all the information on all those different zones when they're being collected. But that's urban zone three at the moment that is the area you should see that rubbish being put out there. Some people get a bit keen and put it out way too early. Oh, and then it and does look a bit... for weeks in advance. Yeah, sort of thing. Look a bit I'm sure I'm urban zone three, aren't I? No, you're urban zone four. That bad luck. Another couple of weeks for you. Yeah, that's right. So have a look at those. I'd prefer people got it out in that week that they're applicable yes. for. Again, give it a few days for people to go on go through your rubbish and yeah. see what they might want out of there. But it's always good to sit and watch that too. Yeah, that is. So <laughs> Urban Zone 3 is this week up to all the Friday, the 11th of November. Have a look at that website to see exactly where your area is. But that's a, a rough description of where that area is. Wonderful. Well, folks, uh, if, uh, if you've got uh, some stuff sitting in there in that garage or if you've got some sitting, uh, sitting there in the back shed that you need to toss out, now's the time. So jump out there and put that rubbish out. Man, it's absolutely hard to believe, but is it really, is this right? 
Has the Shoyan Gardens up there in East Dubbo, is it really celebrating 20 years? Has that been going for 20 years? Yeah, quite incredible. And it's actually a really interesting story. Ken Rogers was very involved in it in the early days in terms of getting that whole Shoyan Gardens there. That's my neighbour, by the way. Ken Ken Rogers? Oh, he's a lovely guy. Not the country and western singer. No, no. I found that out pretty quickly when he started to sing one night (laughs) after a couple of scotches and I realised it was a different bloke. Definitely a different (laughs) bloke. Uh, But he did a great job when he was Director of Parks and Land Care at Council. And I had a lot to do with Ken when he was there at Council. And back in in the day when this was all being put together, Alan Smith was the mayor of the day. It probably started before. It probably started around Tony McGrain, then Jerry Peacock. But Alan Smith was the mayor of the day when it actually got opened up, officially opened up. But it was an interesting story. If you talk to Ken one day, as as your neighbour, have a Mm. a chat to him about it. But there's the aged care facility just near where the Shuryuan Gardens are. And when this was first being proposed, a Japanese garden, there were some people in there who still had memories, whether it might have been some relatives of theirs, or some people might have actually been involved Mm. with the Second World War. So it actually created a little bit of controversy Mm. around some of those people living there so close to Japanese gardens, not being overly happy Mm. about the fact that you had Japanese part of that. You can sort of appreciate the sensitivity, I'd imagine. Yeah, Yeah. so it was a bit of an issue, but Ken worked through it very well and got to the stage where essentially the people in the HK facility saw Mm. the value of that. And again... We've moved on. I mean, it seems like a long time after that. It was probably 55 years after the Second World War. But yes. people, obviously, Absolutely. if you had loved ones lost or you had someone mm. in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, for example, mm. maybe yourself or someone that you knew, mm. you probably would hold on to those memories for a long time. Mm. And I do remember being in Poland a couple of years ago and people still talked about it. There, One particular person we met still talked about the fact that his grandparents were unhappy with him because he had a friend that was a German descendancy. And right? he, just, he said his wow. grandfather said, I shouldn't be friends with someone from Germany or any way, shape or form linked to Germany. So mm. there were still some of those issues that are yes. uh, held on to for long periods of time. But anyway, the Japanese gardens there, the Shoyan Gardens, wonderful part of our tourism facilities that we've got here in Dubbo. up there the way it looks, especially yeah. right now if there's rain. Yeah, that's right. And Minakamo is our sister city in Japan. And we still have an exchange with Japanese gardeners who come over each year and make sure we're doing the right thing with that garden. So they, they come teach over every year? Every year. They teach wow. our gardeners what to do. They make sure we're on top of that. So that's fantastic. They probably skipped a couple of years during COVID, yeah. but certainly that's part of the process is we have that exchange. And we've skipped some years with COVID in terms of our exchange students. Normally mm. we'd have exchange students go there each year and vice versa, uh, but we've skipped those couple of years, but that'll all start opening up again. So yeah. it's a wonderful facility we've got there and that exchange that we've got there is fantastic. So if you're around on the 20th of November, 4.30pm yes. to 8.30pm, we've got the Mayor of Minakamo coming over to visit us. Is this the first time he's come over? No. Well, again, during COVID, no exchange, but normally mm. we had a regular exchange. I've certainly been over Minakamo oh, okay. in the yep. past as Mayor and certainly yep. we've had previous Mayors come over. So it's been that regular exchange of either dignitaries or mayors or different groups, might be students, for example. So it's been that regular exchange apart from the last couple of years. There's always going to be an asterisk in the future, isn't Absolutely, there? Absolutely, that's right. Whatever yeah. happened, Everything asterisk. but those two years. Remember? Yeah, that's right. But if you're around on that 20th anniversary date on the 20th of November, 4.30pm to 8.30pm, whole range of activities. Are they going to have, have the there drummers again? The drummers will be there. How magic are they? They are. I they, love those they drummers. They sound it's, fantastic. It's, and you could imagine sitting there on a beautiful, well, it's not quite summer, but close enough to, and let's hope the rain will go off and get those drummers punching away. Yeah, but it'd be great to see lots of our residents there to celebrate 20 years there. And I think it is a really nice facility there that looks fantastic, but also just the history of that between our two cities. That Japanese tea house was essentially constructed in Japan, then deconstructed, not sure if that's the right word, but Mm. pulled apart, Mm. sent over here in in containers, and then they sent their builders over to actually put it back together again. And that was a present from Minakamo to us. We've also got the Japanese gates there, another present from Minakamo there. Yeah. So oh, okay. That's been, where they come from. Okay, yeah, they've been yeah, very right. generous in what Absolutely. they've done for us over the years. So it looks fantastic there. Again, I would recommend anyone that hasn't been yeah. up there have a look at it, definitely. But if you can make it on that day, come along and help Dubbo celebrate that relationship yeah, we've had with years. With, eh? How amazing is that? Now, actually, just in regards to that very, very quickly, that, that whole area up there is quite magic too. Yeah? You can wander around there. Is that also the area where they're putting in the big new Wiradjuri Centre? Is that the new Aboriginal Centre? Is that where that's going to go? Yeah, absolutely right. So that whole area, that whole block there is called Elizabeth Park. And it's actually an interesting point that you touch on there. It is a fantastic example of how master planning works at council. Way back before I first got on council, way back again, it would have been in Ken Rogers' time, Mm. they put together a master plan for that entire block. Now that master plan involved having Japanese gardens there Mm. and a range of other facilities there. 
And over the years, that master plan was then updated. It was probably maybe eight or nine years after that first master plan was put in place, that master plan was updated because things change and our mm. facilities and what we needed changed. And it's been updated again. So over the 20 years or a little bit more than 20 years, there have been three different master plans. Okay. Those master plans have changed a little bit over the time, but it's allowed that whole area to be developed as one large area. Now, when you look at it now, you've got the Century Gardens up there, you've got the yes. Adventure Playground, you've mentioned the Radjuri Cultural Tourism Centre, which hasn't been built yet, but in the process of being built, we've got about $5 million that we were given from the state government for that particular facility. It's going to be amazing, I think, from the Yeah, that place. whole area there. So mm. you can imagine with all those different parts of that, that area there is a really great tourism area already. It will only be enhanced further, but that's only been possible because people had a vision over 20 years mm. ago, put a master plan together, and a master plan is not something you set in concrete once and then forget about. A master plan it's is like to say... a working document. Exactly right. Yes. Here is our plan at the moment. Yeah. Let's start... Going forward with that plan and that original master plan, if you looked at that now compared to what we've got, it's different. Mm. But they had a plan, they had a vision, they started putting pieces together for that vision and then over time that changed. Mm. So the vision can change and that's okay to adapt and update that plan. Mm. But what you do when you have that master plan is you have something to work towards. Then you go to government and say, we'd like some money for this particular area or you can put money aside from your own area or you might have individuals come along and say, how can we help? How can we make Dubbo progress? So those master plans are really important. So there's lots of master plans yes. for different areas, but they're always that working document, as you said. Well, congratulations to all of those involved in the process of creating that master plan because it absolutely looks magic. And Matt, a couple of quick ones to finish off here today. The Dubbo Day Awards are coming up on the 23rd of November. Now, I know we talked about this either last podcast or the podcast before. How are things shaping up for the Dubbo Day Awards? Yeah, we've got our nominations in. The judging has finished on those. Oh, I won't beauty. reveal any details there. I get you the, can't release anything yet, can you? Can't release anything yet, I'm sure sorry. About that? I, I change I, some money. It's 20 bucks here for you. <laughs> I get to have the fortunate position of sitting in on those judging committees. And again, I try not to be too involved. I like to sit back and just let the committee do the judging. And it really only comes down to the mayor of the day to make any tough decisions if it's a lion ball or whether someone's trying to be decided for the Tony McGrain Award, for example, if there's a couple of names thrown around there. But what I really like out of sitting on those particular committees is you see so many people that do a fantastic job in Dubbo. Mm. And these people aren't expecting any reward. They're no. not out there trying They're to seek any accolades. They're achievers, aren't they? Yeah, exactly right. So just briefly, the Dubbo Day Awards are to commemorate when Dubbo was declared a village. Yes. 23rd of November, 1849, were declared a village. And then those Dubbo Day Awards started back in 1999 and they've occurred every year since on that day, on the 23rd of November. Now, it's open to the public. If anyone wants to come along, they're open to the public. Oh, good. We'll talk more about those as we get a bit closer yeah. to that. But Down again, the Civic Centre? Down at the, the Civic Centre, that's right. And we'll, we, we used to do it as a morning time function, but we found that some of those people that received awards couldn't get a lot of their friends come along, so we do it as an evening function, now, early evening function now. So that makes it a bit easier for people to get along. Brilliant. And again, just hearing what some of those people do, yes. seeing the smile on their face for, for that work they've done, I get a bit of a buzz out of that. It's like a citizenship ceremony. It's oh, just everyone in the room is feeling absolutely. really great about themselves. It's a real buzzy, wonderful feel that to acknowledge these terrific people and what they're doing in our community. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely spot on. So keep that date free. 23rd of November, if you can get down to that, come along and have a look at it and just celebrate with those people that have done a wonderful job. Brilliant. Wonderful. Now, speaking of sort of that area around the council, across the road there, uh, a big thing happened during the week, of course, the, the finalisation of the Victoria Park number one oval grandstand refurbishment. <laughs> oh, boy, I remember the days when Sims would play Macquarie down there at number one and we'd sit in the old grandstand there and sort of we'd drop the 20-cent pieces or probably five-cent pieces back in those days between the big cracks in the floor and you go into the change rooms and uh, they were always a sight and you could smell them coming up from the base. So it must be so lovely for everyone involved there now to see the refurbishment of Number One Oval because, of course, it's not just the grandstand that's now finished. That whole area of Number One Oval has been refurbished. It's it's including the ground. Yeah, it looks like a, a great area there now. That you've got it's the amazing. new pavilion there. You've also got that refurb that you're talking about there on the actual grandstand. And of yes. course, the old cycling track around the outside has been removed, so it yes. makes that cricket area a little bit larger now, so it's a bit harder if you hit those sixes now, Mark. So. Oh, look, mate, I, I, I struggle to sort of get past that 20-yard mark at the full, <laughs> so don't worry about that. So the wooden seating, which I'm very disappointed about, actually, the old wooden seating oh, come on. that you used to get some splinters <laughs> in, in your backside from sitting on, that's all been changed now. There used to be a bit of broken flooring around there. All the old paint's been removed. Yes. Yep. So, and it's basically got 
aluminium seating. It sounds so modern, doesn't it, for that well, old grandstand? But no, it does. A bit Great pair of those frosty on. mornings, the aluminium, I tell you. Well, I was thinking that myself. <laughs> I thought if you're down there watching a game of footy in the winter, that might be a bit tough. But in uh, summer, when you're watching cricket down there. Take your you'll be right. <laughs> That's right. But uh, look, again, it's good to see that old grandstand, which is a classic old grandstand there. Just a, a refurb on that. And again, it does, as you said, it does help with that whole area there. So basically, we've got $100,000 from the New South Wales government for that. Fantastic. So that was put towards that. And, and again, have a look at it there. It, it's For anyone that remembers it like you do and yes. like I do, those old days there, it's certainly just a nice refurb there. And that whole area is looking pretty good at the moment with that old Victoria Park number one oval in its all its glory there. And yeah. then, again, with some of those things, some of those facilities around there, you've still got the rugby clubhouse there, which the, the Dubbo Rugby Club built and put the money in towards that. And I said that pavilion there. So, mm. look, that whole area there is looking better now. It does. It's great to see that. And, again, I suppose it's one of those things that you're always trying to work out ways to keep improving Dubbo as a councillor. And as they say, do yourself a favour and go and check it out. Well, Matt, I think it's almost time we finish up with your, I'd like to refer to it as your world-famous limerick. I know there's people around the world that must love to hear it as well. So, Matt, what do you got for us this week? All I've got here on my little notes is that I'm going to surprise you this week. Well, I thought I was giving you too much of an advantage by actually sending you my limerick each yeah, week. Well, so I thought were. I thought I might just surprise you on there and, and see how we go. So this is because I've been down at the Rhodes Congress this week in Hobart and roads, roads and roads were the three topics that everyone talked about at that, but certainly the poor condition of those roads. So I thought maybe a limerick about the condition of our roads and probably a bit of acknowledgement here that the roads are in a poor condition. Excellent. So this week's limerick goes like this. This week we've been discussing our road condition, which is in a state of major decomposition. We've been learning lots of tricks to give our roads a fix, but what we really need is an experienced magician. <laughs> Ah, well done, Matt. Great job. Well done, folks. Well, that just about finishes up now, of course, for this week's edition of the Merrill Memo Podcast. We'll be back again next week. Until then, take care. Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.